Carol Voice Davies, welcome to Tell a Friend. Good morning. No, I just morning. I just say good ever, good whatever. Now, so. for my audience who may not have come across your work, you are a distinguished professor at Cornell University, and you're also the author of the seminal Left of Karl Marx, which I have here. And yeah, we've both got our copies here. And I wanted to use this episode today to talk, first of all, about your iconic book, but also talk about the lady behind it, Claudia Jones. But before we get into talking about her, could you talk to me about the idea that, um, of this book and your process in writing it? Well, it, it um, developed organically. And I, I love to say it's actually the spirit of Claudia Jones actually pushed this book all the way to the end. Because I didn't start off like that in, in terms of an academic project and then you begin to do the archival work and schematize it and then go all the way to the end. It sort of came together almost like a quilt of different pieces. So that's what I want you to imagine when you think of it. Um, and simply because um, something like 1988, unless people like you are probably not even born yet, um, I met Buzz Johnson, who had just then published a small book uh, on Claudia Jones. And its title was, I Think of My Mother, which is actually a line uh, from a quote from Claudia Jones talking about how she got to be an activist because of what happened to her own mother. And um, he gave me that book. I bought it. Um, and I took it back with me uh, to the United States. Um, and then teaching Caribbean um, women, Caribbean, sorry, teaching Caribbean literature, teaching black women writers. For some reason, I would always go back to it and select a little piece of it to use in my teaching process. Um, and then I was asked to be part of a black feminist seminar at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And um, they were inviting people who were quite, um, well-known as feminist, black feminist theorists. I'm talking about people like Bell Hooks. I'm talking about people like Deborah McDowell and others. Um, and um, because I was invited and I worked on the Caribbean and the diaspora broadly defined, I thought that it would make better sense for me if I did something that looked at the black feminist um, scholarship but not in the U.S. linear format, but looked at what else was there. And I went back to the Claudia Jones um, book. And of course, going back to that um, uh, book by Buzz Johnson, and then using it to then do additional research, I discovered there really was not much written on her at all. That was really quite shocking. And at that point, when I started to dig then and find additional material, there was only like a clip file in the Schomburg with one um, Schomburg library, it's a famous library in New York where her um, papers are now housed. Um, and there was only a clip file by Robin D.G. Kelly, um, which was an, art, an, an entry in an encyclopedia. And then a small article, which I think I've reproduced in the book, newspaper article about her um, being um, incarcerated or released from incarceration, one of those two. And then that was about it. And I was amazed at that. So after that, I was on a sort of journey whenever I would go to London. And I went many times with my university as part of the, um, their study abroad program in London. Each time I would go, I would do a little bit more digging. So this is what I mean about quilt work. So the archival work was not ever consistent in that way, but each time I would go to London, Every couple of years, I would do a little bit more work. And basically, every time I would talk to people and ask about her, they would say, well, she's buried next to Karl Marx in Highgate. Um, so, and I didn't go the first time because I had taken my children with me to London and we were doing other things. And I was also teaching that London program and didn't leave a lot of time to do other things. Um, but um, eventually, the next time I went, I decided to go up to Highgate uh, to look for this um, famous bust of Karl Marx. And, I, and that I recount this in the book. I go and I'm on the tour in Highgate because as you know, Highgate has these tours and they take you to the old part of the cemetery 
15th century and so on. And eventually I asked the tour guide, but where's Karl Marx? Because I thought eventually we would get to the Marx bus. And he said, oh no, it's on the new side of Highgate. So I abandoned the tour and I make my way over there and then come across this massive Marx bus, 11 feet tall or whatever. And then of course, I wanted to see his bust, of course, but in terms of who he is, but I wanted to see that plaque on the ground next to Marx, which I identified as left of Marx. And that's where the title comes from. So it's not arguing that she's more radical than Marx or whatever, but she's positioned left of Marx as you stand and confront the Marx bust of Highgate. And then of course, the more research I did on that, I discovered that this was deliberate, placing her there. So that in, in my view, and I see this in the text, it sort of opens up Marxism in a different way than the sort of fundamental dogmatic Marxism that people receive and are turned off by, but in fact looks then at how black women are positioned in uh, Marxism. So I began then doing that short piece as I, as I was seeing at the University of Wisconsin-Madison where I talk about her, and then gradually I would do different portions of Claudia um, in different ways, and it all comes together in this large book. Uh, manuscript that, that became left of Karl Marx. So it's, an, I mean, I tell people doing um, scholarship, I'm not a historian and I'm not claiming that I did history, but I did enough historical work to be able to um, write a really substantial piece on her, which engages her from many different angles. So it's not a biography in the classic sense where it begins with her early life and goes through, you know, the different stages, but it picks up different pieces of her life. So for example, the deportation chapter deals with the, 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 um, the um, legal questions that have to do with how she was deported, what happened and why. And actually enrolled and did a master's in international law um, just before doing it in part because I think I wanted to be able to write this in a really credible way. So I actually got a master's in international law um, LLM um, in order to do this piece on her deportation. So I put in a lot into, into doing it. And of course did other things, but this part of it is, is definitely there. So if you walk with me through the introduction, you will see the steps. But as I said, it's also very spiritual because each time I was trying to find another piece, I'd be in London looking for something, looking for a person, and then I would run into somebody who worked with her like I did with Ricky Cambridge, who was her last assistant. And he was able to give me all that information and help me get to um, her, um, the source of material, which Diane Langford kept um, in Hampstead, which then became an amazing leap forward. Because when I met Diane uh, Langford, she, um, I went to her house and she had two boxes open with all this material spilling out of it was all this Claudia Jones stuff that she was showing me that she kept in these two boxes which she had found by going through her partner, Manchander's um, uh, material after he passed. And um, Manchander was Claudia's lover and partner in London as well. And then Diane married him subsequently. Uh, their daughter is in London as well, Panther Manchander, Claudia Manchander, named after Claudia Jones. So Diane showed me these two boxes and I was like so amazed that she didn't know what to do. What do I do with it? Because she said people kept coming, borrowing pieces, taking bits and pieces out of it to be used. The BBC did a special program um, where they took the boxes and then brought them back. Um, Marika Sherwood, who did a book called, uh, edited a book called Claudia Jones, Their Life in Exile, also did the same thing, took them on her bicycle and rode through town. So eventually Diane wanted to know what to do. And I suggested the Schomburg, back to the Schomburg, because the Schomburg is in Harlem and it's the major archive of black materials. And it, I thought it would be a good place for the Claudia Jones material for two reasons. Claudia spent most of her life in Harlem and she's actually from Harlem technically before being in London. Um, she grew up in Harlem after coming to, to the US and lived there all her life up until being deported. And then that she was deported. And it was really, for me, significant that she come back to Harlem. And her bringing back her material to the Schomburg was bringing her back to Harlem for me. And I was entrusted um, by Diane Langford to do that. And I, uh, you know, it was like a scary thing. I brought two huge suitcases and put all the material in it and then flew with it 
to um, the U.S. I was working at Northwestern University at the time. I had a, an assistant help me organize it into categories, scan it, save some of it, and the rest of all of it went to the Schomburg after that. So that's the pathway to doing the book. So each of the chapters captures one of those moments. I did the chapter on poetry when I was in Trinidad on a Fulbright, uh, and I was looking for Claudia Jones material then, like where she was from, where she was born, and so on, and I was going through the poems that she wrote while she was incarcerated. And I presented that at the University of the West Indies at the Center for Gender and Development. So that's where that comes from. Um, each of the pieces, definitely the introduction and the opening chapters, which talk about deporting the radical black subject are pieces that I wrote for this particular text. And then of course the FBI files, getting the FBI files and that massive thousand page document was another thing. And that's the last chapter because I was looking at how the FBI constructed her and then how she constructed herself. And those two stories came together amazingly for me. And I still use it when I present the way the FBI would talk about her and they would have um, agents studying her and the agents would come back and say something like all we found was that the subject works on black and Negro, Negro people and women. That's what the way they would use back then. And then now people work on black women like there's no problem. But back then, anybody who worked in anything that looked like that was considered leftist. She, though, was in the Communist Party. So she got additional scrutiny because of that. But keep in mind Martin Luther King Jr., Robeson, uh, almost all the, the entertainers at that time were under inquiry or subjected to um, um, red baiting um, and all kinds of ways in which the U.S. constructed this communist bogeyman. So the people who were actually communists, you can imagine, then were further um, uh, set upon by the U.S. government, and she would definitely be one of them. So I'll stop there. That's now, quite an introduction, but it covers all of the pieces. I, w I wanted to ask you, um, mm -hmm. so there you mentioned, well, I think I'll introduce Claudia Jones. Um, so she was uh, a radical black activist, journalist, campaigner, and her life story is really one that spans the globe, as you were mentioning, from Port of Spain, Trinidad, where she was born, to Harlem, and then eventually to London. Uh, she's really a global figure. But before writing about her, did you have any apprehensions about writing uh, about a black radical figure? Because even today we see there's a lack of black radical voices. Did you have any apprehensions? Did not at all, and probably naively so. <laughs> As I said, I had done a book um, actually called Out of the Kumbla, Caribbean Women and Literature, um, which was probably an edited collection, one of the first collections that really dealt with the fact that there was a body of material called Caribbean women's writing, right? So now that's the whole field. Um, and in doing that, one of the things I said in the introduction, that basically I knew about the Caribbean writers who are women by that point, right? Whether it's Sylvia Winter, whether it's Paul Marshall, whether it's whoever, Jean Reese, the whole range, right? Dion Brand and so on. But I did not know the intellectuals who would be that counterpart. I did not know a female CLR James then properly. So in my head, um, I was somewhat always imagining those people existed, but did not have the, the ability then to find them. So coming upon Claudia was that, she was that person for me. And I still see her as the intellectual equivalent of CLR James and the hardcore Jamesian scholars, um, and leftist activists sometimes, you know, would question that. But Claudia died at a very young age. Um, and imagine James lived till he was almost, what, 88, 90-something? So essentially, James had another 40 years after Claudia Jones died to, um, after, in terms of how much time was put in after she died, um, to really build and amass his intellectual career. And that's the point I want to make. So for me, she is an intellectual equivalent of, of CLR James. Um, she was also, he, they had similar kinds of issues, being deported and so on, living in the US, living in London. Um, and people often would ask me during presentations if they would ever have met 
And it seems they never really met, but they were on one, they were on a panel together, according to Donald Hines, um, in support of Hurricane, a hurricane that had happened in the Caribbean. But they were never friends. And I talked to Laming, George Laming, the writer, about this when I interviewed him. And he said they actually moved in different circles totally. Claudia was more the sort of activist grounds, um, grounding kind of person who worked with community, doing all the journalism and stuff. And James was much more the intellectual, scholarly kind of figure. So she was on the ground and he was doing other kinds of things. And I, I want to start right from the beginning. What were the early uh, experiences in Trinidad that led Claudia Jones to begin um, fighting against and uh, fighting against causes, uh, issues such as racism, sexism, and classism? Was there anything in her early childhood that sparked that activist light inside of her? I would say no. She came to the U.S. when she was eight years old, um, and she was part of that. Um, first big wave of Caribbean migration to the United States, which, in which people settled in Harlem and then later on in Brooklyn. Um, I, my point in, in um, bringing um, that movement up um, is that she identifies her family as sort of falling on sort of economic hard times, necessitating their movement to the United States. In that move to the United States, she leaves the Caribbean, um, and I went to her house in Belmont, so I, I saw, you know, the area where she lived and grew up, a little narrow lane called Casabon Lane, um, and actually we did a ceremony there um, a few years ago. She, moving from the Caribbean, where, in the, as you know, in the Caribbean, there's a much more communal, familial set of relationships and so on, to Harlem would have been a real major shock. So it was not so much the, what she was experiencing in the Caribbean that would have been given, given to her the ability to create a kind of political identity because she was eight, but really that migratory journey, one, and two, ending up in Harlem in a time where it's not like it is today where Harlem has become gentrified, but it was a place where it was, there were tenements, people were poor, they weren't living well. It was in the middle of the Great Depression and so on. So she comes into Harlem on, in two critical notes. Right at that point in 1924 when she arrives there, it's the heyday of what is now called the Harlem Renaissance, where you have jazz, where you have music, you have to have dancing, poetry, and so on. And people dressed and walked around Harlem very elegantly, even though they were poor. But they were also living very difficult lives. So essentially race then, and, and we still see those twin representations of race on the one hand, negation and, and objection and so on, but on the other, the ability to take that same objection and negation and make it be beautiful and do what one can with it. So she would have witnessed that in Harlem. So she's seeing poverty. She was seeing her mother working like crazy, um, doing um, sewing in, in one of those startup factories where they had a lot of women doing, uh, working in garment districts in heat and without a lot of support. But also her father was working as a super in a building and they were living in the basement. It, as a super in the building, that's where the base, the, that's where the person, that is the person who manages the technical aspects of that building, you know, the plumbing and so on. And normally they would give them a an apartment in the basement. She indicates that the apartment that they lived in was very poor and there was an open sewer that ran right in, through it or in front of it or very close to it. So she was um, therefore very sickly as a child and became ill um, and, and actually was, was institutionalized at, at one point uh, for that. And this illness would affect her life consistently. Some people indicate rheumatic fever, which damages the heart. They also indicate tuberculosis, which also gives you lung issues. So you can see that she grows up then um, coming out of poverty in the Caribbean, but much more communal life to now urban, poor um, New York environment. Cold, think about the weather, it's going to be cold. It's not going to be warm like the Caribbean, right? Um, where people give you fruits and mangoes and stuff if they, if they know that the children need food to New York where you don't get all those things. So she had to recreate herself. So for me, it's the journey, the migratory journey, and then experiencing, she identifies it very strongly, Jim Crow racism in the United States at the same time and economic poverty. 
And then she says, growing up as a young woman, she would listen to the street corner speakers in Harlem. And anybody who has studied that period will tell you that at that point you would have this whole logic of people standing at street corners, just as they do in Hyde Park uh, in, in uh, London, but standing on street corners and talking about black experience, black conditions. Marcus Garvey did it. Another guy named Hubert Harrison had done it before Marcus Garvey. And according to all reports, sort of educated Marcus Garvey about how to do this. And in fact, the story is the first time Marcus Garvey did it, he almost fell off the, stay, off the, off the soapbox and so on. So she would listen to these street corner speakers, but she found the ones who were from the Communist Party offered the best analysis of the conditions of black people. So she was more attuned to think their arguments were the ones that would be offering her the best explanations of her own family life, her own poverty, what happened to her, why she's ending up from, in New York from the Caribbean, and all of the other aspects of her life as a young black girl growing up in Harlem at the time, who she said was not even able to go to her own graduation because she didn't have the dress to wear. So poverty and all of those questions and how to explain that poverty leads her to the Communist Party very early. So she joins officially when she's like 21 years old. But normally when you join, you would have been exposed to them before. They would have been cultivating you. So she was around them when she was like 18, straight out of high school. And then from there, develops, um, becomes a journalist um, in various Communist Party organs and then moves up the, the ladder to become the person that we know today. So it was a very organic um, development for her. But mm -hmm. I'm interested in her um, affiliation with the Communist Party because today in America, and you could argue in the Western world, communism is still something that is... Um, Mm -hmm. People are apprehensive about it. There's a lot of reservations about it. When she was witnessing these communist speakers in Harlem and when she eventually joined, what were the attitudes in America at the time? To it was really harsh because this is what was called the McCarthy um, period. And, uh, and actually during, so she would have had to be very determined as a person to really take this pathway, um, this analytical pathway. And I have really wonderful photographs of her with young um, communists in, um, at, a, at a forum in Vassar College in upstate New York, where they were doing a kind of youth forum, youth organizing forum. Um, so it would have been difficult, yes. But it was, at the same time, a different from now. You still had an active Communist Party USA. And they were doing a lot of street organizing and so on. So they, it, although you have a, this... Um, the disparaging of communism, at the same time, they were the ones who were actively doing a certain kind of work. She mentions the Scottsboro Boys trial. The Scottsboro Boys were nine young boys in Alabama who were accused falsely of raping two white women in a train car, boxcar. You know, those train that in those days, people would jump on the train in those carriages, not the seated part, but the place, part of the train that carried luggages and products and so on. Um, and they would go from city to city looking for work, right? She mentions um, this Scottsboro Boys trial where these young men were almost lynched and were some of them as young as 12 years old were tried repeatedly um, for raping these women and it was not true. And eventually the woman, one of the women um, admitted that it wasn't true at all. But the significant aspect about that, it was the Communist Party's legal arm that did all of the organizing work to help the Scottsboro boys. Because at that time, keep in mind the NAACP, although it was the primary black organization, it often did not have the wherewithal to do all of the kind of work they needed to do that. So the Communist Party lawyers were the ones who did a lot of that work in the South to help free the Scottsboro boys. And they were often organizing in New York City and talking about what they were doing and so on. So she credits the Scottsboro boys trial and the Communist Party's work on that as really being formative. So the point, in, in response to your question, the point is that yes, the Communist Party was still being demonized, but I think it's worse now because following the McCarthy period and the witch, communist witch hunts and so on, what was put in place in the United States was a punitive formation 
of United States citizenship based on not being a communist. This is really critical. This is why even with Bernie um, Sanders, who ran for office, even just saying he was a democratic socialist, which many people don't see as a socialist in the classic sense, but more somebody who believes in a sharing of resources in a democratic uh, social system, gets equated with Venezuela, gets equated with any attempt that people have to really, or Cuba, to think about creating a socialist society. Not at all true. So basically, what was put in place following this McCarthy period in the 1930s and all of the communist red baiting and so on was an equivalence with U.S. citizenship and being anti-communist. And I say this with, with clarity, for sure, because when you become a United States citizen, you have to fill out that citizenship form. And two of the last questions ask you precisely if you have ever been a member of the Communist Party, which is the exact question which was asked during the McCarthy period. So they, they, and most Americans, if they're naturalized citizens, would know this. But if they were birth citizens, born citizens by birth, they don't know this. So they come alive and they're born into a culture which already is formed to be hating of socialism. So back then, socialism was still seen as, or communism was still seen as a legitimate political place that one could have an identity. But then you have the demonizing, then you have the witch hunts and so on. So she was part of a group of black leftists, black communists, who were quite confident about what they were doing until this happened. And they were identified as sort of the kind of radical chic group that dressed a certain way and looked a certain way and moved through the United States in a certain kind of way, which she was part of, which is ironic, isn't it? That I think it has gotten worse in this contemporary period. Now, how many uh, yeah. black women were active in radical politics at the time? Because I can't imagine that it, they were full of uh, black radical women speaking out. Was she in a minority? She was not, and this is a really important point to make. There were women ahead of her that she, she was influenced by. Uh, and in my work, I talk about some of them in, in the chapter. Mark, um, the couple of those women um, identified very deliberately, and she, in many of her writings, also identified several of them. So it's really important to talk about the fact that she was part of a group. There was also another larger group called Sojourners for Truth and Justice, which was organized around that same time and which had a number of other black women um, who were similarly involved um, in, in, in that process. For example, a woman named Louise Thompson Patterson was very much involved as well in that kind of organizing at that time and actually went to Russia with a group of people who were going to be um, actors in a, in a, in a movie in, in the Soviet Union and end up not happening. So there were women ahead of her. She mentions a woman named Ward White, who was an organizer and did a lot of work in Buffalo, organizing garment workers and so on. And there were others after her. So basically she was part of a group. Um, and it's really important to say that. There's another uh, woman named Vicki Garvin who followed her and then says that Claudia Jones was her major advisor. Vicki Garvin is somebody who one of my grad students is doing uh, work on um, she ends up in um, Ghana and then ends up in China, um, doing work in, in a number of cities in China. So there were women ahead of her, there were women along with her, and there were women after her who were active. Um, not huge groups, of course, but a cadre, let's say, of women who were doing that kind of organizational work. And I spent some time talking about those women in, um, in, in my work. There's another really nice essay that a young woman from Michigan State wrote called Running with the Reds, where she talks about precisely that. And I, that is a reference in my work about that, that somebody can look at later on. Now, in her journalism that she was doing, whilst uh, a member of the Communist Party and whilst uh, being active in Harlem, she talks about race, she talks about class, and she talks about gender. And in the book you talk uh, about her journalism is mentioning the triple oppression that black women faced. Now, why was it important for Claudia Jones to raise awareness of this triple oppression? You know what I, I love about that um, and that question is that she always uh, foregrounded the identity of being workers, being women, and being 
black. Back then they used the word Negroes. So women, Negroes, and, um, and workers. Um, because those were her identities. She carried those identities. And as I mentioned, when she listened to the street corner spe uh, speakers talk about these questions, I am sure she was inquiring enough to want to know where does she fit into this whole framing of things. And with her own identity and then her mother's identity, she saw then that woman had a particular experience that was a little bit different than the men uh, and the white women who also um, suffered in different kinds of ways from patriarchal um, um, oppression. So for her, and this she precedes, um, and one of the things I make, uh, points I make in this work and I assert really um, repeatedly, she precedes Angela Davis in that formation of women, race and class. She is the person who really talks about that very early. And Angela Davis actually cites her on this. So it's not like Angela Davis hid the fact that this was coming from somewhere. She, it was coming from Claudia Jones. So now people talk about intersectionality and so on. I don't buy that fully as an argument for Claudia because she was looking at it in a different kind of way. She was looking at the layers, the ways in which these identities get layered and function, intersected or not, um, in different kinds of contexts. So for her, she uses a concept called super exploitation of the black woman and actually develops that to talk about the fact that black women are, are multiply exploited by different groups who are also exploited. And that's where she gets this logic of super exploitation from. So that all workers then in society are exploited because of their position, the way they have to sell their labor and so on. But then those same workers end up also being able, because of where black women are located, to also exploit those black women. And this explains for her why black women give so much labor and receive so little remuneration. So that this is the super exploitation thesis that she's talking about. Keeping in mind that black women may work long hours in somebody else's home as a domestic worker, as a cleaner in a hotel or whatever. And then when they go home, they also have to work again in the home. They also have to take care of children. They also have to do household work. So that that length of, of, of labor that um, the black woman puts in into any given situation renders her super exploited by the dominant society because of all the layers which then exploit her labor. So there are very few black women who are able to live those kinds of lives where they're not victims of that super exploitation. And that's the point that she makes really well. And I liked it because it explains uh, so much in terms of how um, black women are positioned in society. The fact that black women still make, um, at one point it was 67 cents of every dollar white men made, and I believe now it's something like 72 cents uh, of every dollar that a white man makes. So that essentially you're not really occupying a, an equal level of, of access to the resources of any given society when you position as a black woman in that society. Now, many of her writings, which uh, I came across uh, being a history student and uh, I studied some of her stuff, you find out that the authorities at the time, they were, you know, fascinated by her work, but not out of a fascination or interest in what she was saying, but out of, um, a desire to stop her in that sense. And the FBI had meticulous files where they were collecting all of her writing. Could you talk to me about why the state was so anxious about Claudia Jones? I know that is, you know, I, I, still, I still have to ponder that. But one of the conclusions I came uh, up with very early is what she said. She argues that if black women were to move politically, and this is in an essay she wrote called An End to the Neglect of the Problems of the Negro Woman, and also another piece called We Seek for Equality, published, what I believe, in 1948. Um, in those essays, she really talks about the fact that if Black women move, the entire population moves. So for Claudia, she felt that in the Communist Party, their um, neglect of black women as full participants in those movements 
rendered then a whole population of women outside of um, being really fully used in terms of their capabilities, right? So for her, she, I think she saw, and then she spent in 1948 as well, quite a lot of time going around the country organizing women's groups as the secretary of the Women's Commission, working with a woman named Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was the president of the Women's Commission of the Communist Party USA. And their point was simply that one had to organize black women. And if you organize black women fully, then you have a, an amazing force that could really challenge a lot of the ways in which both gender, race, and class were being, um, gender, race, and class were being um, um, understood and then positioned in uh, dominant society. So I think it's that sort of capture, capturing that sort of um, alliance that the dominant society didn't really want to see coming together, that black women now would be empowered and able to move. And I, I keep arguing that when black women take a particular political position and advance it in a, in a certain kind of way, it really has that sort of impact on the larger society because women are benefiting from that, men are benefiting as well, and the larger society also moves further. So it's, I think those are the kinds of things that the state saw as um, causes for them to really keep her under surveillance. And they actually say that, that um, because she was in such leadership in the Communist Party, she was um, targeted for closer surveillance by the FBI and, and they pursued her relentlessly. I found even in, in getting the, the FBI files for her that they were still keeping tabs on her when she was in London. So some of the entries are after she left, you know, it's not that you leave U.S. borders and go to another country and then they forget about you. They kept following and knowing what she did. And in fact, the last, one of the last entries in the FBI files is that she had died, meaning that they don't have to really pursue her anymore. So just think about what that means. And when I saw her work on um, speaking out against the Korean War, she would speak against capitalism, she would speak against imperialism. And interestingly enough, whenever she was taken to court, they wouldn't even read her work, which goes to show you the power of what she was saying, uh, that there was so, uh, the state was so fragile that they wouldn't even read her work. And right. I was wondering, um, could you talk to me about her movement to Britain and uh, the decisions that led to her deportation? Yeah, I like that point that you made about wouldn't read her work because when she goes to court, and I have a um, that entire speech published in another book called Quoted Jones Beyond Containment, which was published by IABA in Banbury, and it's um, she says in that speech, you dare not think that black women can think and speak and write, and she mentions the fact that they were not reading her work, so she was really aware of, of that um, way in which they did not study her. But my point was that in, in talking about her saying that, was that she was also claiming herself as an intellectual subject, that you don't think that we can read and think and write. She was claiming all of those as thought, you know, being able to do analysis and think through, write, being able to express it, and also read and being able to, to, to do it. And she did all of those things well from all accounts. So she um, was tried and then sentenced to a year and a day in Alderson, West Virginia, the federal penitentiary for women. We are also another person, famous person, uh, uh, was there after her, Billie Holiday, the, the singer. Um, and she, while she was in prison, which is really the, the craziness about that, there are also a number of other left communist women <laughs> from Puerto Rico, Lolita Lebron, and a few others, also in prison at the same time. And she writes poems for one of them, Blanca Canales Torresola, who was the woman who had declared Puerto Rican independence um, in a city called Jayuya, and then was, of course, tried in the United States and incarcerated as well. So she was in a place, she was incarcerated in a time when a number of other women were also incarcerated, and she became friends with some of them, and they were all in prison at the same time, which is really strange to even contemplate. But she does only 10 months in prison because of her health and the prison food and the salt in the diet and so on. 
So she's released, but then she's deported directly after. She's released in October, and then she tries to have stays of her deportation. And there was talk of, about sending her back to Trinidad and Tobago, but they did not. They sent her to London because I gather they felt that they could keep better tabs on her if she went to London. Going back to Trinidad at that point, they felt just before independence um, happened in the Caribbean, they were not going to put a full, fully trained communist in the middle of that because they felt it would like have that sort of impact on the society at last. So London was the place that she ended up being. And I thought that in a way, um, going to London for her then became kind of a, a choice of exile. Um, so I didn't read it so much as like a loss, but actually as a place to gain a whole different international um, reputation and, and um, community and rep and, and, and um, a sphere of activism, I, I should say. So I am really, I didn't see it as a negative thing, as a loss. She went on a cruise ship, not a cruise ship, a, a line, an ocean liner, the equivalent of what would be a cruise ship, where they had to dress up and go down for dinner every day and so on. And then she arrives in London, but she then has to re get reclimatized, get a place to live. She was met by Caribbean people who helped her out. And then she um, is also hospitalized. So she would have several illnesses while she was in London um, and was under doctor's care. But from all accounts, she never stopped. She kept working and so on. But not too long after getting to London, she arrives in December 1955, she is able with Amy Ashwood Garvey to found the West Indian Gazette and Afro-Asian Caribbean News later on. And from there, be able to launch a series of other um, projects, including the first carnival, and including also this group called CACO, Community of Afro-Asian uh, organ and Caribbean Organizations, which did a number of things like marches against immigration bar and all kinds of other things. And then from there also be able to travel to the Soviet Union, to travel to China, to travel to Japan. So this is what I mean about leaving the United States and its own domestic dramas she gets a much larger international audience, meets the Chairman Mao um, in, in China, and there's a whole other, a lot of other work. And then, of course, dies that same year. One of my graduate students from China has been working on this China period, and I'm really happy about that for, uh, in, for his dissertation, that when, he, um, when he's finished with it, it should be a nice contribution to knowledge and scholarship. Ms. Jones, why aren't West Indians applying to come to this country in any numbers? Well, I would say that uh, the Commonwealth Immigrants Act has uh, acted as a deterrent against their coming. And in fact, that was the intention of the act, which uh, many of us considered a colour bar bill. Now, there was a good deal of ill feeling about this act when it was introduced. Has that ill feeling among West Indians died down? Uh, what is important to recognize now, it's not so much they're feeling directed against the act as such because they're responsible, the act is law, they're fighting to repeal it, but the consequences of the act, uh, namely uh, the fact that the population at large, because of the whole propaganda against the West Indians, uh, regard them as second-class citizens and they themselves, on the job, in virtually every sphere of life, find this difficulty uh, since the Immigration Act in terms of discrimination, uh, colorable housing, etc., etc. I wanted to talk about her activism in London because something that I found when looking at, you mentioned CLR James, Amy Ashwood Garvey, and a lot of the black activists that came afterwards, London became sort of hub for the black intelligentsia. They all kind of congregated at the same time. And during this time, you also had anti-colonial leaders from Africa, such as Joma Kenyatta, who uh, she was acquainted with. What was it about London that drew all of these activists together? Because it's quite a remarkable time for all of them to be at the same place at the same time. Well, you know, the Calypsonian Kitchener has a song, London is the place for me. So you have the Windrush generation of people migrating, right? And then uh, along with that, the students, student organizations with people like Stuart Hall coming later and a whole range of others. But all of the people who would become 
um, leaders of their home countries were students and members of an organization called WASU, West African Students uh, Organization or Union, WASU. Um, and they would be um, people that they were meeting and circulating and socializing with at that time. So that's very significant. But why London? It's, it's so um, clear um, that London, under, under colonialism, British colonialism in particular, you would have the sort of construction of England as this, the mother country and as the center of all knowledge, beauty, brilliance, and all of those things that you would have with colonialism, and therefore the desired location if you wanted to do anything um, uh, intellectually, creatively, educationally, and so on. Keep in mind that back then in the Caribbean and in Africa as well, often they did not have sufficient high school even or university level education. There was a, 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 a something called the Imperial College of Tropical Agriculture in, in the Caribbean, um, which then became University of the West Indies. Um, but from, if you wanted to become a writer as James did and so on, and many of the other people like George Laming and, and others, the idea was that if you wanted to publish, if you wanted to be anybody, you would have to go to England. So colonialism, that's one of the byproducts of colonialism that Stuart Hall talks about. Because he says, you know, we are here because you were there. So basically, they held up London and England as the place to be. And therefore, there's people who were thinking ahead, who were thinking creatively, who were smart enough to get into the schools that they should get into, went to those places. So you end up with a conglomeration then of intellectuals from different parts of the world, creative people from different parts of the world, all meeting at the same time. And then being able to talk about the nature of their condition in London, still running into racism, remember, and also what was happening back home. The same thing happens in Paris. This is how you end up with the Negritude generation and people like France Fanon and others, because they were told in the French-speaking colonies that if you wanted to be a proper Frenchman or French woman, generally French man, you had to go to Paris. You had to speak French like the French, and you had to go to Paris. And then once you did all of those things, you master the language, the intellectual fields, and so on, then you'll be recognized as a fully French-made subject, not so? And then they get there and discover there's still racism. So they get to Paris, they get to London, they discover there's still racism. So it's out of that that somebody like Franz Fanon would write Black Skin, White Masks, where he has in that section called the lived experience of Blackness, that confrontation with the white gaze, which looks at you with contempt. And he says, you know, the, he sees the, 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 the man on the train sees who is himself in a way, sees the little child on the train who says, mom, look a Negro, look a nigger. And then he's looking at me and I'm afraid. And, and Fernand is like, I'm a, he's a, she's afraid? How can, you know, where did this come from? How do I get positioned then as this black subject, abject, you know, negated, position in this certain kind of way. The same thing is happening in London. It's just that Fanon is writing about it in French, right? So in London, these people come and they're like supposed to be part of the empire and welcome and so on. And then people don't want to give them housing and they don't want to really allow them to be fully um, members of the community and so on. So they're running into race, they're running into all kinds of housing discriminations and so on. So somebody like Claudia, who comes from the US, having seen the same thing, is able then, once she forms, uh, founds a West Indian Gazette with Amy Ashwood Garvey's help, to now become the kind of person who offered aid, who offered assistance to people who were having those experiences that she recognized. So according to the people I interviewed, she was seen as the kind of godmother of the community, and people went to her for all kinds of reasons. And interestingly, in the West Indian Gazette, the first... Um, um, issues of it that I looked at, she begins to use it as a kind of space to really create black community because black businesses were able then to like start advertising, people making and selling products were able to put them in those, um, in, in those portion, advertising portions of the newspaper. But also she creates this carnival and the carnival was again meant, it had a beauty queen section, it had all kinds of other interesting components meant to showcase and highlight 
the beauty of black experience in London at the time. So all of those things then are taking place. And yeah, she's meeting people and there are wonderful photographs of her with Martin Luther King Jr., with W.B. Du Bois, with Chetty Jagan, with all Jumo Kenyatta, with all of these people that she ends up running into and meeting because of the kind of work she's doing as a journalist as well. Now, fast forwarding to, uh, if we fast forward to today and look at the way that Claudia Jones is remembered, do you think people actually engage with the ideas uh, that she advocated for, or do you think people just engage with the fact that she was an activist? Because I, uh, the reason I ask this is because we see Vogue magazine uh, doing a profile. I heard, yeah. Claudia Jones, and often when we look at Black history in the UK, her name pops up, but yet her ideas, her anti-capitalist, her communist ideas, her anti-imperialism, don't seem to come up. So what, what's happened to the way that we remember? Well, you know, this is, you know, I guess it's the duality of these experiences. And if you look, think of somebody like Angela Davis today, it's the same thing. She's in Vanity Fair dressed, you know, and, and all of that, posing for photographs in a certain kind of way. So I think the black, you know, this is the whole question. And of course, you must have heard about this young white woman who has been impersonating being a black person. So blackness is both desired, but it's also abject, right? So you have those two things clashing all the time where the blackness is negation and also, you know, also um, desire at the same time. So I think um, assertion, negation, assertion, consistently working. So Claudia's position there, for sure. So, I mean, on the one hand, somebody like me, I'm happy whenever she gets representation because she was meant to be erased completely. So whenever somebody picks her up and shows her publicly in, in a certain kind of way, I'm happy about it. Um, and I know she is more known in terms of the carnival, but even so, there was even debate about, about giving her the status of, have, status of having the first carnival in London. So always there's this question then of, of having to reclaim her intellectual space. And it's up to, to the kind of people like you, young scholars who know this, so that we are able to take it forward. So in my, in my thinking then, there's always a continuum in terms of representation, right? So on the one hand, you have the sort of intellectual, scholarly understandings of her, the activist versions as well, and then the popular ones. So that's, that spread then is what, is what I guess one desires and where she's located. And we constantly have to find avenues like this one where we can fill in that information and make sure she's seen and heard. Now, I've had many people, and this was a lot of interesting debates with people in London saying, well, was she really communist? She was. Um, so that's one of the points that we have to keep stressing. She's buried left of Karl Marx. You know, so she, I mean, there's where, how, how much closer can you get than that, you know? So she was that for sure. But I think the, in, in the UK, and this may be coming from, you know, the various forms of, of trying to manage her in the UK, was to sort of play down her communism and make her much more kind of palatable social figure, right? But all of her experiences were generated then. What I will say though, is that once she is in London, she's not received in the same way by the Communist Party Great Britain, CPGB, as she was by CPUSA. So because of that, she has a greater reason and an impetus to really work with her own community. So she becomes much more of a pan-Africanist in London. But that doesn't mean that pan-Africanism and socialism are always in conflict. According to George Padmore, he uses or, you know, pan-Africanism or socialism. And in, in his view, pan-Africanism in its practice should carry all of those aspects of socialism in terms of creating societies which are not based on sort of capitalist exploitation, but allow people to live their best and fullest lives, which is how he would have defined it, sharing resources and so on. Claudia never gives up on those positions. So she moves in the U.S., and this is the point where she dies, sadly, right? When she moves from the U.S., she becomes much more open to working directly and mainly with Black community, creating those organizations like Kaku, which do that, going to Japan and being a speaker against nuclear proliferation, going to China and meeting Chairman Mao, interviewing 
um, you know, a number of women in China and so on and traveling around and really understanding the place and, and what they try to do. So I think right at the point that she dies, she's shifting away from the sort of hardcore CPUSA Soviet framing of an identity and looking at it more in terms of the international um, issues that were coming out of the so-called third world or the global south and positioning herself there. And this is when she, we lose her. So just imagine, you know, the continuance that would have happened, you know, had we been able to have a few more years of her um, to contribute to our thinking. And when you reflect on Claudia Jones's history and her activism, where do you place her in the dichotomy of grassroots campaigner and uh, intellectual? Because she kind of fit into both. Because with her journalism, she was really speaking to those, the grassroots, those, um, the everyday black man and woman. But yet she also held a spot within this mm. academic field with the circles that she was going in. So where, mm -hmm. where do you place her? I see her right there. And in fact, I was at, um, on a panel at Harvard in February before everything closed down. And one of the questions they asked people like me was like, how do you, you know, how do you see yourself in terms of activism? And one of the things I said is that there is already a black radical intellectual tradition into which many of our people who perceived us belong. And I placed Claudia squarely as one of the women in that black radical intellectual tradition which combines activism and intellectual work in different degrees. Now, if you are a professor at a university doing intellectual work, your activism may come out differently. You may not be on the streets doing all the grass work, grass work, as you indicate, that some others would be doing, but you're similarly doing intellectual work that is identified as, according to Du Bois, challenging the ways in which we are positioned in the wake of what is called modernity, not so, so we position negatively in terms of how the black body, the black subject is identified following enslavement, following colonialism and so on, where we came into the new world then with this, with this objection as identified by enslavement. And then we still positioned like that because of colonialism, because of continuing global racism and so on. So I am one of those people, I don't buy this logic that people only run into racism when they reach, when they reach to the UK or come to America because these global racist paradigms are operating in those places all the time. Some people are not aware of them and some people are, right? So the knowledge that we acquire from people like her help us to really unpack and understand how we are located in society and how we challenge these intellectually on the ground in terms of grassroots planning, organizing, and so on. So there is a category then of the black radical intellectual to which many of us and I see myself squarely as belonging to that. And in that black radical intellectual tradition, there's a Caribbean version. There's a Caribbean intellectual tradition as well that is activist, that has people like her, that has Claudia Jones, that has Sailor James, that has Sylvia Winter, that has a range of other subjects as well. So I belong to that. And I'm really proudly part of that tradition and see my, any contribution that I make to advancing that as part of that belonging to some sort of larger black radical intellectual tradition, which combines in different ways, practices in different ways, articulates in different ways, but through it all continues that process of unpacking how we are positioned in the wake of modernity and this so-called framing of our worlds in, in the contemporary period, still operating with global racist paradigms. Now, as someone who works within uh, a university, I wanted to talk to you about decolonizing the curriculum because throughout my time uh, as a history student very rarely did I ever well I, I wasn't taught by any non-white lecturers I didn't uh, come across any black literature except when I had to take my own initiative and uh, go and find uh, wow. these sources and I wanted to know from your perspective how do universities decolonize um, completely and how can they use their study to eradicate racism and also create a more inclusive society? I know it's such a big deal and I'm really happy um, to say that my university um, and I've, I've talked about this consistently over the years 
in because my field is literature and I talked about Ngugi Wathiongo decolonizing the mind and his earlier work um, on the abolition of the English department and so on. So essentially my university uh, following the killing of George Floyd and the student um, protests and uprisings all around the world, the taking down of statues and so on, the, the recognition that global racism permeates so many societies that police, police brutality is evident in many different locations and so on. Um, coming out of that sense of helplessness, my colleague Mukuma and I came up with a proposal to have our department, the English department, change its name from Department of English to Department of Literatures in English. And it actually passed. We put it forward to um, the first meeting um, of the semester um, last week, Wednesday, and it actually passed. And now it should go through the ranks of the levels of the university. So the question is, um, I would say one department at a time, because all of those departments carry the marks of, of, of um, colonial structuring in terms of faculty or the absence thereof, the subject matter that they teach, the courses they offer, and so on. So at every level, the institutions are already locked into institutional racism. And I was using, in my own presentation, a formation from Sylvia Winter, where she argues in a piece called No Humans Involved, an open letter to her colleagues at Stanford, that it is the university that reproduces racism and therefore reproduces it in terms of its teaching of students, maintains it, and those students go out into the world, again, reproducing racism in a very particular way. So for winter, it's we, the academicians, who she calls the grammarians of this epistemological order, who maintain the racial structures in our very teaching. And actually, Amy Césaire, the famous um, Martinican poet and activist, had made the same point when he said that philo within philosophy, you already have the structures of racial oppression, which then are acted out in the larger context in terms of how the so-called Negro is defined um, in terms of how black people are subjected to be defined as not on the equivalence um, of, white, of the white subject. So basically, we in the university have to always be self-questioning. And anytime we have an opportunity to do that kind of transformative work like we do now, to really take it forward. And hopefully we would have intellectuals who would be able to help um, advance some of those when they can. And students have a role. They have a role to push against those boundaries as well and, and challenge those institutions like my institution. Now the students have something called Do Better Cornell. <laughs> so you can have your institutions do the same thing. Do better Oxford, do better Cambridge, do better whatever. Um, I know there were movements created like why is my curriculum so white and so on. I think you all have to continue those. You don't have to give up. Different waves of students need to take it further and each group needs to take it further. And it's, keep in mind, this is a long process. Look at how long, I mean, I've been talking about decolonizing the English department. And then finally, we're able to do it. And I like this point that CLR James makes, that there are conjunctural moments, that there are certain times in history when things come together, which therefore create the conditions for that qualitative leap that allows other things to happen. So we are in a conjunctural moment right now, where people are more aware of global racism, and therefore more apt to be able to do something that transforms it a bit. So if you can transform it enough for the other, it's not going to be revolutionary change, although this is what people like Stokely Carmichael wanted, but I don't see it. So essentially what one has to do is to find a way to transform these institutions bit by bit so that they become more habitable places for us and our future. Because you don't want your children to have to go through the same thing or your sisters and brothers and others coming after, your neighbors coming after you. So one step at a time, one department at a time. If you're in anthropology, then you need to challenge them. Um, if you're in history, then they need to go forward and push it a little further. And this is what we're doing. Fortunately, our universities after the George Floyd and so on, put out statements that said they have to create more just and equitable institutions. So we're taking that seriously. And finally, I wanted to ask you, in your assessment, with all the research you've done on Claudia Jones, what to you is her lasting legacy? 
Oh my God. Her lasting legacy is that she was able to live out and be such an amazing contributor to the thought that we carry today. The whole question of being a black woman in society. And, and just as Fanon talked about the lived experience of blackness, you have Claudia Jones talking about the lived experience of being a black woman in society. And therefore, um, Fanon has a quote um, at the end um, where he says, oh, my body, make of me a man who questions. I see Claudia Jones as that person saying, oh, my body, make of me a black woman who questions. So this to me is what she did. And this allows her then to enter history in the way that she has with such an amazing elegance as well, beauty and elegance and calm, but ongoing activism and contribution to making us live in a society that is, you know, more reflective of what it should be in, in, uh, in any kind of estimation of what kind of life one should live. Carol Boyce Davies, thank you for joining me on Telefriend. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Brian.